It's Thursday, October 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump on Wednesday announced that the U.S. will lift sanctions on Turkey and also said that the ceasefire in northern Syria is now permanent. The safe zone in the area will now be enforced by Russia and Turkey. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the latest details and the Trump foreign policy doctrine. Next, scientists have created a new, more powerful technique to edit genes. While most people may be familiar with CRISPR, this new method is called prime editing, and it offers more precise gene cuts with less errors. Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET, joins us for more on this new gene editing technique that could enable treatment for approximately 89% of genetic mutations that cause disease. Finally, who are all those strangers that are watching your Instagram stories? While we may like the extra attention, it may be part of a new account promotion strategy. Some social media agencies are enlisting bots to help make it look like their clients are watching millions of stories a day. It's called mass story viewing, and people are just hoping that you follow them back. Jane C. Hu, contributor to Slate, joins us for all those strangers watching your stories. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Today's announcement validates our course of action with Turkey that only a couple of weeks ago was scorned. And now people are saying, wow, what a great outcome. Congratulations. It's too early to me to be congratulated. But we've done a good job. Joining us now is Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Missy. Thank you. President Trump announced on Wednesday that the U.S. has brokered a permanent ceasefire in northern Syria, taking credit for this deal, really, that Turkey and Russia are going to be enforcing this safe zone in the area. He also announced that they're going to be lifting sanctions that had been imposed on Turkey after they invaded the Kurdish-run area there. Missy, what else did we learn from what the president said on Wednesday? What President Trump said was that he is going to lift some sanctions on Turkey, and he did not appear worried about the potential resurgence of the Islamic State after the Turkish offensive has sort of destabilized much of northern Syria. And so what President Trump did was pick the recent events in Syria as a victory for the United States, facilitate an American military withdrawal, and as he described it, bringing peace to an area that has been very fraught for a long time. But obviously, a lot of the depictions laid out by President Trump in his address are questionable on the fact that the Syrian military and the Russian military are moving into areas that have been under Kurdish control for years now, and that Turkey has a potential to restart its military offensive in parts of northern Syria along its border. All serious questions about whether this is going to be even potentially depicted as a success in a week or so. As you mentioned, the president is claiming this as a total victory. He said no other country did this. It was us. It was all us. This might be one of the clearest pictures of the Trump America first doctrine that we've seen with regards to foreign policy. He even said it. We're not going to get involved where the United States doesn't have an interest and everybody else can kind of fend for themselves on this. What are we learning about that? This is, again, President Trump illustrating his view of the world, which is a little bit more or significantly more transactional. And in terms of thinking, what does the U.S. get from its military presence in Syria? And I think his view, his answer to that question was not a lot. So let's not continue it. 
And what he's talking about is let other people deal with this. And he hasn't been afraid to yield to situations that potentially are facilitating the risk of human rights issues or displacement or even greater marginalization of a particular ethnic community, which is something that very easily could occur in northern Syria. And so it really does help solidify, I think, the Trump worldview. And that was an interesting word to use, the uh, transactional. And I totally agree with that. I also feel like a lot of people here at home would agree with that also. Hey, we have nothing to do in this fight. We have no skin in this game. Why are we there? Why are we wasting our resources and potentially harming our soldiers? But these situations are always far more complicated. And for the president, he doesn't want to be there. And despite ditching our allies there, the Kurds who helped us in the fight against ISIS, he's ready to go. He even mentioned in his address on Wednesday that he spoke to General Mazloun and he said, oh, thank you very much. You know, we're happy with this deal. There was an interview that General Mazloun just did with Voice of America News on Monday saying that our trust in the United States is at its lowest point than it's ever been. Have we heard anything from General Mazloun other than what the president has said about it? I think that the Syrian Kurds are put in a difficult position because they at once want to articulate their disappointment and their frustration with the way things have played out and, you know, acknowledge that there was never an explicit promise from the United States to protect them against any Turkish invasion, but also maintain some relationship with what has been for them a very powerful ally in the hopes that that can benefit them again in the future. From the beginning, this whole thing has had many back and forths. We were pulling troops out, then we were leaving some in, then we were actually were taking them out and the troops are moving to Iraq, but they can't stay there. I think they've only they're only allowed to be there for another four weeks. From the beginning, Republicans and Democrats have not been on the president's side with this. Is there something that they're seeing that the president is not or vice versa? I mean, I think, again, the critics in Congress would be looking at three things that most critics are pointing to in terms of the potential national security cost to the way this is playing out in northern Syria. The first is the most direct, the potential resurgence of the Islamic State as you have people escaping from prisons or you have the potential for areas of poor or absent governance could give rise to militants be more active. You also have the potential for this, and I think we're already seeing this out, the potential for this discouraging local groups, non-state actors, and also states from partnering with the United States because the idea is that they see the United States selling out an ally. So wouldn't they do the same to us? And the third potential cost is the fact that this really has strengthened Russia's role and the Syrian government's role in this part of the world and allowed them to dictate events. And, you know, they both have terrible human rights records in Syria, and there's no reason to think that they will change their ways of doing things right now. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. So if prime editors can go in and edit the DNA of a patient with sickle cell disease and refine that tiny little change, that one genetic mutation, one DNA letter, you can actually essentially cure sickle cell anemia. And that's sort of been, in essence, a holy grail of medicine for a long time. Joining us now is Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET. Thanks for joining us, Jackson. Thanks so much for having me. 
So scientists have created a new, more powerful technique to edit genes. The one that a lot of people might be familiar with is CRISPR-Cas9, and the other one is called base editing. But there's this new technique, it's called prime editing, that researchers at Harvard have unveiled, and this one seems to be a lot more precise, it's less error-prone. Jackson, tell us a little bit about this. This is a really exciting development for gene editing in general. Now, I guess to really distill it down to its basic level, a base editor can change the letters of DNA and CRISPR-Cas9 can do the same thing. But prime editors have a really unique ability to find and replace entire swathes of DNA and do it without creating errors. And that's the biggest key and the biggest change over CRISPR and base editing is that there's such a low error rate. And really at the moment, what's preventing this technology from being used in human therapeutics to treat genetic disease is the fact that the error rate is just too high for us at the moment. But the exciting part is if we are able to refine it and get it to work as we want it to, it could enable treatment for approximately 89% of human genetic mutations that cause disease. So it could really be a huge game changer. This is game changing in that being able to bring that error rate down is really what's hampering CRISPR from being sort of used in a human therapeutics. And I use the example of sickle cell anemia, which is something that Lou's lab did in this new paper. Sickle cell anemia affects your blood cells. So your blood cells take on a sickle shape and they actually become really sticky and they can't carry oxygen around the body as well. And in that disease, it's actually only a very tiny genetic mutation that causes it. So if prime editors can go in and edit the DNA of a patient with sickle cell disease and refine that tiny little change, that one genetic mutation, one DNA letter, you can actually essentially cure sickle cell anemia. And that's sort of been, in essence, a holy grail of medicine for a long time to be able to go in, change one base in your genetic code and essentially cure a disease. Traditionally, the CRISPR tool would cut across, basically. It would cut across both strands of the DNA, and this new style, we can just make the exact edits that we need. CRISPR is often referred to as molecular scissors. So it comes in, it cuts the DNA strand, both because DNA is double-stranded, it cuts both strands. And basically, to edit the gene then, what happens is the body's natural system repairs that break. So depending on how it repairs the break... Sometimes you'll get the edit that you want, and sometimes you won't. You'll get something even weirder. So that's why CRISPR's sort of error rate is much higher, because when those scissors come in and cut the DNA, they don't just cut the target that you want. Sometimes they'll actually cut DNA far away from your target site as well. But prime editing doesn't cut both strands of the DNA. Instead, it actually kind of creates this little flap of extra DNA, and that is what gives it really high precision. Basically, what it has to do is perform this secret handshake. So you and I, if we're, if we're handshaking now, we might do a fist bump, we go into a quick grab, and then we hit each other's elbows or something. <laughs> Essentially, with CRISPR, it's a single handshake. It's just nice to meet you sort of thing, and that's what happens with the DNA and CRISPR. But with prime editors, they kind of have to do this secret three-step handshake. And with a three-step handshake, there's more opportunity to stuff it up and be like, hang on, you got the handshake wrong. So I'm not going to let you cut here. So that's what brings the error rate down and um, the off-target effects down a lot more than CRISPR is currently being able to be used. One of the big problems is that these prime editors are pretty large in molecular terms, so they won't work everywhere just yet. So far, they've been able to get up to 44 base pairs, so 44 DNA letters they were able to insert into a genome, and they were able to delete up to about 80 letters. 
So that's still quite big in molecular terms. And actually delivering that prime editor and the changes you want to make into the cell, that's very, very difficult as it gets bigger and bigger. Of course, something like, say, if you're using like Advil or aspirin, these molecules are really tiny, so they can get in and alter the cell. But with these big complexes, it becomes much more difficult for them to just slide into a cell. You actually have to sort of deliver them in a way that basically punctures them through the cell wall. And, and at the moment, some of those ways that are being used is, for instance, you can attach the complex to a virus and get the virus basically to deliver it into the cell and get to the DNA where you want to make that edit. But at the moment, that's a very long way off in terms of how we could use it therapeutically because that delivery process is kind of the biggest roadblock at the moment. And how successful have they been with this? What they did in the paper is they took human cell lines, so four different human cell lines and mouse neuronal cells. With the cell lines, they corrected sickle cell anemia and they corrected Tay-Sachs disease. And basically, the success rate or the efficiency of cutting is anywhere between 20 and 70%. So this isn't perfect, but it also doesn't necessarily have to be. You don't have to get 100% DNA editing for it to be a successful treatment, for instance. For something like sickle cell, what actually happens for a patient is if I've got sickle cell anemia, I'll actually have my blood drawn. It'll be taken out of my body and then edited in the lab. And then what will happen is that blood will be put back into my system with the edits. And actually that is how you can start to treat sickle cell anemia. And indeed with CRISPR, this has already started to happen in the US. So there's been a couple of patients that have already undergone this treatment. So prime editors just essentially, if they can bump up how successful that gene editing is, it could be pretty big for something like sickle cell anemia where the changes that you have to make are very minimal. Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar. I'll be curious about who you are. Like They'll wonder, why is this person looking at my story? They'll go to your page and then maybe if there's something interesting there, they'll follow you or like something of yours. And yes, yeah, it sounds like this mass story viewing has become a promotion strategy for some of these social marketing agencies. Joining us now is Jane C. Hu, contributor to Slate. Thanks for joining us, Jane. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to be talking about a fun story specifically about Instagram and who's watching all of your stuff. So Instagram, along with putting pictures on your grid, just the still pictures and videos, things like that, you also have this opportunity to post things to your story. So those are usually videos, uh, a lot more mundane, everyday things. They could be exciting things also, but usually there's this care taken when you're going to put something to your grid. It usually kind of means something. A lot of people post their everyday activities on their stories but what's happening is a lot of times you'll get a lot of people watching your stories, maybe people that aren't even your friends, people that you don't know, random companies. There's all these weird people that end up looking at your stories and you took a little look into who some of these people might be. So what did you find out, Jane? So I got curious about this because I was looking at who was looking at my story and realized that increasingly it was a bunch of people I didn't know. And so I did what a lot of people would do in 2019, which is I Googled <laughs> Instagram story random people um, <laughs> like or why are strangers looking at my Instagram it's story. All, it's all about um, the keywords. So. <laughs> totally. I think I must have tried probably three or four different combinations before I got anything that seemed relevant. 
But I came across a bunch of different posts in forums of people asking the same question. And mostly it was people saying, hey, me too, but I don't know what's up with it. But there was a post earlier this summer from someone who said that they were working in social media marketing in Russia. And they mentioned that their company had been using this a lot more as a strategy to try and get people to look at their clients' pages. So the idea is basically that if you look at people's stories and they don't know you, they'll be curious about who you are. Like they'll wonder, why is this person looking at my story? Well, go to your page. And then maybe if there's something interesting there, they'll follow you or like something of yours. And it sounds like this mass story viewing has become a promotion strategy for some of these social marketing agencies. And that's 100% what happens if you're, you know, I, I like the way you put it. If you're a small timer, like one of us, you know, we're not any type of big celebrity or influencer or something like that. You're going to look through that list. And you're going to say, who is this person? You're going to click through. You're going to say, oh, it's so-and-so is a model or something. And then you might like some of their pictures like, all right, I'll follow that person. And that's the tactic right there. It, it kind of exploits this ten and tendency for people that take an interest in us. Well, we're going to take an interest back in you. And this kind of creates this whole thing where you can increase their followers, things like that. So tell us a little bit more about what you found out, this mass story viewing and how this is a business marketing strategy in and of its own. Actually, speaking of keywords, which we just were, once I had the actual language behind what I could Google, that phrase mass story viewing turns up way more hits. And then that actually turned up a bunch of companies that are using this strategy and soliciting clients. So it sounds like one of the first big companies to do this was based in Russia. Some YouTubers who have channels dedicated to trying to increase your social media following were talking about it on their channels over the summer. And at first, apparently it was only available in Russian, on a, uh, but on, it seems like... On a side note, I love how the story <laughs> always leads back to Russia, but please continue. <laughs> Yeah, I was interested in that. That struck me as interesting as well. But right, so this first company at first seemed like they were only providing the service in Russian and like the YouTube videos showing you how you could switch the language if you spoke English so that you could see what was going on. But essentially the offering is that these companies have bots that will watch some claim up to 30 million stories a day with the idea that the more people's stories you can look at, the more people you have looking at your profile and the more likely you're going to build the following. So at the end of it, though, what does this all really accomplish? I like the way you put it, too. You kind of feel sorry for the people who are paying for this in a way. It looks like you pay like $10 a month and you pay this company to have a bot look at things for you. I mean, me personally, I feel like it's a little desperate, but then again, I don't make my living off of having social media followers. But <laughs> I do think it'll be interesting to see what Instagram does about this. I contacted Instagram and they said they are aware of the problem and they've been trying to crack down on other annoying spam bots that other people have noticed, like random people following you, hoping that you follow them back or people just straight up having spam accounts and sending you messages to look at their sexy pictures. But this seems like a little more of a subtle gray area where it's just a different strategy. It's a little more opaque than something that's so obviously spam. Jane C. Hu, contributor to Slate. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.